Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And with me this evening, as always... And I'm Ed. My pronouns are they and them. I'm currently in the process of getting Knoll Country designated as a uh, tax-exempt church because we worship at the uh, star points of the Goborg. Yes, uh, the biggest problem with getting a tax-exempt church status is that it doesn't help with anything because this podcast doesn't make anyone money. So we're not paying taxes on it already. I'll I'll think of something. I mean, maybe... I, I... Maybe if we're a church, we can declare your house to be our place of worship, and then you won't have to pay property taxes. I like it. I was going to say money laundering, but I like that idea better. Oh, yeah. Money laundering is also good. Got to get those bills clean. Use uh, I do not recommend bleach. Use my uh, special soap for uh, construction stuff that really, really gets the grime out of your out of your clothes. I like Dr. Bronner's, personally. I don't think I've ever used that one. It's a really good soap, but the labels are covered in super tiny, like, insane Soviet citizen-style rambling. Um, except it's not really Soviet citizen. It's, like, weird, old, hippie, vaguely religious stuff. It's hilarious to read. Um, and it was, like, a... Something that the founder of the company demanded beyond all the bottles, even though I don't think he's involved with running it anymore. Um, it's very I respect a little bit of eccentric eccentricity. Yeah, and it's very like new age hippie, like we have to be clean in order to be at one with the creator. All all governments of the world must you know, agree to follow these points of being clean and so that God will come back and blah, blah, blah. It's it's a bunch of nonsense, but it's entertaining nonsense. As an anarchist, I must cleanse myself of the state. As a board game person, I must wear deodorant. Yes, it is mandatory. Yes. At the at the FLGS. At any game store. part of the dress code. Yes. And today, we're going to be talking about game stores a little, I guess, because we're talking about good game mechanics. That is, Yay. mechanics in a game that we like. We did an episode about bad game mechanics, and now we're doing the flip side. The stuff that's good. Things that make games better. The stuff that doesn't better. suck. Yeah, things that make games better, things that make games good, things that um, more games should do, perhaps. Maybe not all of these game mechanics, because some of them are kind of contradictory. And not all of them work for every type of game. But before we get into good game mechanics, we have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. Hobby, hobby. I'll go first. Mine's quite simple this week. I only had one D&D game, and they um, were the ones with the airship and fleeing from the... Uh, evil lich that's going to kill them all, and they got into Sharn, they found out, uh, they visited the house of the parents of one of the characters, uh, who she's playing a, like, minor in the game, 
So her parents have sent bounty hunters out to look for her, and they, uh, the person who went in was involved with her backstory and bumped into the bounty hunters, and they took some stuff relating to her backstory and her brother to try and see if they could find him, because he's been missing for a while. And um, because they had publicly registered their airship before... Uh, as they were getting ready to leave the city, the bounty hunters showed up and were like, That's them! Stop there! Stop right there! Uh, because they hadn't hidden the airship at all. That Bro. It, it's the name they registered it under legally in the last kingdom that they like spent any amount of time in. Where they did a bunch of highly public and highly visible activities. I never thought the bounty hunters would eat my face. It, it, it It's a question of, did you... You did all these public activities. Did you not think that the bounty hunters would, like, follow up on that information? Um. So, yeah, those... They fled the city before those guys could, like, stop them. But now there's going to be... Now they know that those bounty hunters are back on their tail. So that'll come up in future sessions. They but also I was got trying some... to hide in plain sight. Uh, they they don't have that ability. None of them are rogues. Uh, they also got some information about where the person who went missing might be found. So that's going to be a thing. Um, it spoiler alert. The deal is that his airship got pulled into a rift caused by certain, like, weather alteration devices and some, like, stuff left over from the war and is in the astral plane. <laughs> and there's, like, a crazy rift and they're going to have to figure out how to open it to get to him. Which So they went all Event Horizon on you. Sort of, yeah. Um... Think of it like Event Horizon slash Bermuda Triangle stuff. And they're going to have to figure out some things to open, to make the rift open. Well, first locate the rift, then open and, and or stabilize it long enough to get in and get him. And when they get to that point, I'm going to have uh, somebody working for the Lich show up riding in a skyship made of bones. Surprise! Yeah! Necro Skyship. Bet you didn't see that coming. Other than that, I got to play some Go in person, which was nice. Yay. Um, I think that's about it. Ed, how about you? What have you done, Weekend Hobby? Bro, you stole my thunder saying we played Go in person. It's true. Uh, I actually had, like, an entire week of game related shenanigans planned out because my wife was out of town on business all week. So I was like, I have no responsibilities. I can do what I want. And I was going to paint and print. And uh, we had set up one game day. And then I had an advanced squad leader game set up. And then work went all wonky on me. And I've been working like 10 to 12 hour days all week. And with the exception of the Go game, none of my game stuff happened, and now I am really tired. Yay. Yay. 
Now that then, so weekend hobby was not much of a weekend hobby. Sad. Nope. In that case, we'll just hop straight into good game mechanics. We've, Woo! We've got eight of them written up here, and we'll go to the first one. Perhaps one of the most interesting of all of them. And one that I've seen in a number of games and have seen done really well in a number of games and also poorly in a couple of games. And that is Asymmetry. Yes, my favorite. Uh, asymmetrical game mechanics mean things like simply having factions that play differently. Uh, great examples in board games include Root, which has every faction work in a different manner. For a game that can be played up to, I think, five players reasonably well, and perhaps more than five players, but not as well. Um, or in the game Rebellion, which is a Star Wars game based off the Star Wars computer game Rebellion, you have the Rebels and the Empire, and each side plays differently and wins through different conditions. So it can be very interesting, and the asymmetrical nature of the like strong military and the spread-out guerrilla forces make the game very interesting. Um, most war games have an element of asymmetry to them because, well, you're not bringing the same forces. You're not showing up both with a tank battalion of the exact same troops. Yeah, generally when it comes to war games, it's specifically like your army composition or occasionally special scenario rules that leads to uh, asymmetry. The one that really pops into my mind is called Tomorrow War. And that one, there are no like point values or anything. It's kind of a loosey-goosey type of system, but everything is based on scenarios and the forces are never equal because that's just not how war happens. And so you'll have some some scenarios where one side is like vastly outgunned or at a massive disadvantage, but then they have other stuff that can help make up for it. And they're one of the few that I've seen where they specifically say these games are not meant to be balanced because war is never balanced, which... Coming from a design standpoint, that's a, a bold stance to make, but I respect their decision to run with that. Yeah, I I, I do as well. Um, I do like balanced asymmetry, where it's possible for players to win, where one side isn't just kind of screwed from the get-go. But also, war games, especially if you're trying to play out a scenario, that's less of a thing. The win conditions for some people... Um, might just be this particular ship survives. Yeah, and then there were... Um, I don't remember who it was that I was listening to talk, but they were talking about specifically trying to war games something like Dunkirk and having like a French versus German showdown at Dunkirk. And there's really technically no way that the French could win that fight because the French are just going to get crushed into the dirt but that's their objective really isn't to win their objective is to perform a delaying action so that the brits can get off the beach and trying to war game around that and be like what would be your victory scenario here is it just 
based on time? Is it based on how much damage you do? And you can't just do a regular, you know, your side got tabled, therefore I win this war game. And trying to expand more on what we uh, consider as objectives in war games. Yeah, I would go for the French of, in that scenario, essentially, just how long can you hold out? And Yeah, and you'd have like, you know, crushing defeat, marginal defeat, neutral, you know, and then going the other way with victory, just be like, you know, depending on how long, how long you hold out or have some other kind of off table mechanic of, you know, these amounts of guys get moved off the beach each turn and basically have that be like your scoring mechanic. And the longer you go, the more score you rack up. Yeah, that would be a good one as well. Um, and asymmetry is good because it provides more ways to play the game. Asymmetry means that each player is essentially playing a slightly different game. So instead of just one way to play, you have two ways to play. And that's really good and really interesting a lot of times. So asymmetry is fun and it can make games more complicated. And it can make games harder to learn. But adding that difficulty is usually not the worst thing you can do. The hardest part is, of course, balancing it, which requires lots of effort and lots of careful consideration. But well-done asymmetry elevates a game from just being, a, like, pretty but kind of okay to being amazing. And also when it comes to war games specifically, a lot of like the balance fallacy idea is that uh, you're trying to design with competitive play in mind. But if you're playing a game that doesn't really have a competitive element to it or is a game that, you know, you're not necessarily going to have a tournament for, it's a lot easier to run with that asymmetry and see, you know, how does this how does this game work? Um if we're just kind of playing with the rules, because we're not going to have, you know, rules lawyers on each side arguing about it. And there's no like tournament uh, glory at stake or anything like that. So you can play a little bit more around with it compared to something like 40K, where it's like, nope, you need definite rules. It needs to be balanced because this is going to be played in tournaments and people are going to get mad if you don't do that. Yeah. And speaking of winning games, our second game mechanic that we think is good or at least I think it's good, is Hidden Objectives. Uh, this is one that's popular in some war games and some skirmish war games, but also I've seen it used in some board game, card game kind of things. But essentially, that there are certain things that you want to accomplish that will influence your score at the end of the game that are usually laid out on a face-down card and that you only get to show off at the end of the game or like when you accomplish them and score them it's a way to sort of play with that asymmetry again because the opponent doesn't know exactly what you're trying to do what are they doing yeah, it it's great for war games because again it sort of brings in that real life uh you don't know what your enemy's goals are all the time element and it's great for uh just in general playing a game because it creates more of a uh element of um 
chance and randomness without kind of destroying the entire the flow of the game you you're building towards something and the other person has to figure out what that something is yeah another another game that'll probably come back up later in the show is called a uh, combat commander which is a hex encounter war game it's kind of like a lighter version of advanced squad leader but it involves uh hidden objectives and objectives that I believe also can change throughout the game. And so in addition to trying to complete your objectives, you're trying to suss out what the other player is doing. And sometimes you're just like, I have no idea what is happening there. Just they're being weird. Yeah. Um, I would say that among my favorite games with hidden objectives is infinity where hidden objectives are part of it. Uh, they have, when you're playing in tournaments, you have classified objectives, is what they're called. Which you draw from a deck of classified objectives, and they can be a variety of things um, that you might try to do, like hack an opponent or assassinate their uh, like civilian token or whatever. And you don't know what they have, they don't know what you have, but you can score a couple of points at the end of the game if you complete it, which you can sometimes manage to do, and that's enough to, like, flip the tide of battle, and so you win instead of them. Or you get a major victory instead of a minor victory, because you scored more. Hmm. I don't remember if we've ever used hidden objectives in our games so far. We didn't get quite as much infinity in pre-pandemic as I would have yeah, liked. Yeah, we've never used hidden objectives because they're more focused on, like, tournaments and advanced play. Um, they have, they sell little decks of cards with hidden objectives on them. And they keep coming up with new uh, selections of these when they do seasons. Which is a neat, uh, neat component idea. One that I like a lot more than releasing new codexes every three months. Games Workshop. I believe uh, Song of Ice and Fire also has hidden objectives as well. Similar to like in the Infinity ones you were describing, how it's like a deck of cards. Um, at the beginning when you're drawing your cards for your various shenanigans, you also draw some uh, random objectives as well. Usually it'll be like uh, securing some element on the tabletop. Yeah, um, and it's one of those things that hidden objectives are really good for war games, especially. You can also use them in role-playing games. I've had times where different players have their own sort of hidden agenda, hidden objective, something that they are specifically trying to do that maybe the rest of the party doesn't know about. And it adds a level of role-play and um, intrigue that can sometimes be lacking. Uh, Intrigue. One example was a player who was secretly an agent for somebody else and had his own little tasks to complete. Um, and so he kept trying to accomplish those without the rest of the party becoming aware. Eventually, that went wrong. He got exposed. That character got killed. Question mark? One thing I do like about 
uh, platforms like Roll20 is that if you're trying to do some kind of secret squirrel stuff in an RPG, it's a lot easier to send somebody a direct message to tell them stuff without having to be like, let's go into the other room and definitely not talk about the game because then all the other players are obviously knowing. It's like, oh yeah, they're going to talk about stuff that none of the other party is going to know. Yeah, you can also pass notes, which was like the classic way to do that. Um, Is that a note? You have to read it in front of the whole class. No, the problem with passing notes to players regarding that sort of thing is that you had to get into the habit of passing people notes all the time. And oftentimes... It'd be like the one from the office where it just says, hey, buddy. Yeah. Or um, a, a classic one that I have heard of is you pass someone a note that says, don't let anyone else read this note. Destroy it if you if they try to get it. If you do that, I will give you inspiration. Mm-hmm. And then watch everyone argue over why that person just got a note. Um, again. Nothing like a little bit of strategic chaos. Yeah. So hidden objectives, fantastic for pretty much any sort of game. Uh, even in board games, they can be good. But especially in war games and in role-playing games, hidden objectives are great. Now, the next one is specific to war games and board games, and that is public victory points. Uh, like we said, hidden objectives are good, and having to accomplish stuff is important, but displaying at all times what your victory points are is also very good. Um, letting people know how much you've accomplished and how much you need to accomplish to win is important because it's a sense of fairness and it also helps to uh make it pretty clear if someone's in the lead if someone's not in the lead um and i like board games that have like a tracker on them if it's around the edge or if it's in a different spot or something that helps you find out how how many points you have because there are games, including games that I like, that don't count up all your points until the end of the game. And at that point, it's a huge mess as everyone tries to, like, total up everything and figure out where they are. And it, it just ends the game on this sense of, like, everyone pulling out their phones to do math. And that's not fun. Math. Uh, specifically, I would say... Sheriff of Nottingham is really bad about this. As much as I love that game, uh, with its asymmetry and hidden objectives and all the other cool things that it does, the fact that it ends with everyone, like, pulling out their phone to, like, count up stuff and then argue over who is going to be first place, second place on us, on these things, it, like, it, it makes the actually determining who the winner is feel really weak. Uh... Um, it's got some great bluffing mechanics, though. I I do recommend it, and I think we talked about it in an episode uh, yeah. for Game Corner. So public victory points, stuff like Terraforming Mars does this really well. It has a tracker, and you can see who scored more. Uh, Azul does this really well. Every player tracks on their own little board exactly where they are at the end of uh, at each turn uh, and just keeps counting up, which helps make it a very family-friendly game. Uh Carcassonne has a point tracker around the edge of the board. Or no, it has a separate point tracker board. Which one? 
Carcassonne. Yeah, Carcassonne does it. Um, Lords of Waterdeep, which is a Dungeons and Dragons one, same deal, has a point tracker around the edge of the board, so you can see where you are. Doing stuff like that is a really good way to help make everyone know where the victory points are and how you've progressed the game. I recommend it. Our next one is perhaps the most socialist game mechanic that we have. Worker placement. Yes, all glory to the workers. Games where you place tokens or workers or things of that nature in order to drive some form of economic engine or to trigger certain effects that allow you to progress the game. Uh, this is the Eins, zwei, drei, build an empire euro game kind of thing. And worker placement games, there's a whole bunch of them and there's a whole bunch of things that you can do with them. But the nice thing about worker placement is that at its core you're making a decision with limited resources that is public knowledge um everybody tends to have the same number of workers so when you place them it becomes a very like strategic move as to what you're doing and what you want to do on this particular turn but i want my peasants to rise up and overthrow the monarchy yeah Worker, should we design a French Revolution game that's all about worker placement? Uh, yes. All right. Also, also probably something Russian Revolution related, even though the Bolsheviks were terrible. I think we start with the French Revolution and then do a spinoff that's the Russian Revolution once we have the game mechanics figured out. Or we could do one about, uh the uh ukrainian anarchists trying to fend off both the reds and the whites yeah and the western empires Just always always fend them off and and throw in yeah, the worker placements fun throw in the czech legion for that because i like that are crazy. idea too just a game about the czech legion in general would probably be good yeah it's gonna be like um rail tycoon plus risk, plus some sort of bluffing mechanic. I feel like we just we just gave like an elevator pitch for a game there. Basically, yes. But yeah, worker... I'll have to keep it in that list of notes it's that is just endless board game ideas that I never act upon. It's such a big list. I know. Yeah. All right. So worker placement is a really strong mechanic, and it's just a good one in general, and everyone kind of agrees with... Well... Not everyone agrees with that, but enough people agree with it that worker placement is basically a category of board game types at this point. So yep. some of the best worker placement games off the top of my head. Uh, Lords of Waterdeep is worker placement. I recommend that one, if, especially if you like Dungeons and Dragons, but want to see like economic engines going with it. Um, Ed? You got any worker placement games? Cargasone is my favorite that I always go back to, even though it's supposed to be uh, the uh, French French monarchy period. So down with that, those little meeples should recognize their own value. Um, Dune Imperium is worker placement, and it's supposed to be quite good. I haven't had a chance to actually play it. It's sitting on my shelf. Um, 
Yeah, I'm looking at my shelves right now, and Root? I can't see anything in particular that we haven't already mentioned. Uh, Root is worker placement, but it is also asymmetrical, so it is only worker placement for certain factions, and not all of them. Which, again, makes it an even better game. I think Tikal might be kind of workery placement. It's been a long time since I've played it, but you're using, you have like limited resources to be able to like excavate ruins and stuff like that. So it might not be specifically a worker placement mechanic, but it's kind of that similar limited action slash resources. Yeah. So yeah, worker placement, fun game. Uh, The next two are, let's kind of combine them and just talk about this, but they're very war game specific. And so the first one is alternating activations. Yes. Alternate all the activations. So this is essentially the I go, you go approach of uh, where when you're playing a war game, instead of having one entire side go and then the other entire side go, you do specific units or models, depending on if it's a large scale game or a skirmish game or whatever. And you sort of just alternate back and forth each player gets to do one and i think alternating activation is so much better than the entire sides going at any given time yeah it it gives you a lot more reaction ability it provides more strategic depth it means that your units don't just get instantly killed before you can do anything in the first turn it's it, it's how games should be played for the most part. There are full side activation ones that are better at this. Infinity being the key one where it's active reactive and the reactive player actually gets to do things during the active player's mm-hmm. turn um, and can respond a little bit. Although even then that's not perfect and I like alternating better. Um, Act React can be interesting. Uh, Tomorrow's War has a fairly detailed Act React system, which it it's a little bit clunky, but it also leads to just some absolute shenanigans um, on the tabletop, where you know one guy moves and it's just this big domino effect of guys shooting at each other, which uh, I feel like it adds a very chaotic aspect to the war game, which I like. Um, Advanced Squad Leader also has kind of a a hybrid of alternating activations and reactions where there's uh, several phases to each turn, and during each phase, the attacker and defender can each do different things. So in the first firing phase, um, only the attacker gets to fire, but if they fire, they can't move, and then there's a uh, point in the movement phase where if somebody's moving and they move into your line of sight, you can shoot at them. And then there's a whole other activation phase where uh, the defensive player gets to shoot and all that. Then another phase where the attacker gets to shoot back. So um, it's kind of a blend of both alternating and reactive activations, which it gets muddy, I think, just kind of blending those two together, but I mean, the game's been going since the late 70s, so it seems to have worked. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and I'll point out that, you know, alternating activations is really solid. It it works for a lot of games. It's fairly standard for many games. But the next one on our list is sort of can be used either as an add-on to alternating activations or as a standing on its own, and it's quasi-random activation. Or really any sort of, like, activation system that isn't... that is has some more elements to it that can be used to provide interesting gameplay and interesting effects. Uh, some of the most basic ones would be in bolt action where you draw dice representing your forces uh, from a bag. And then you get to activate whatever unit you drew. Uh, similarly, Star Wars Legion does something like that, where it's alternating activation, but each player draws, when they activate, a token that determines which type of unit they get to activate in this situation. Yeah, I like. I really like the uh, Star Wars Legion version because it's also there's also like a bluffing and or gambling element to it with you know how many points the card you're putting down is worth and how many units you have on the table can affect and what those the composition of those units is can affect what sort of tokens you get to have in your stack because if you only bring infantry and one leader then essentially you can always activate whatever you want because you're just always going to draw an infantry token. Um, that's something that certain army lists have played with. Uh, activation control is the term for it in the game. But also you get things like um, Star Wars X-Wing, where you activate ships based on their pilot skill. Uh, in order, either from lowest to highest when you're moving, and then from highest to lowest when you're shooting. Which is not, strictly speaking, random, but because you don't always know what your opponent is going to have, there is a random element in who is going to go first one uh, when you get to the table. Um, and that can be interesting, because it's not... And it's not alternating, and it's not I go, you go, like, full armies. So, yeah, quasi-random activation or sort of more... Using your activation as a game mechanic beyond the standard alternating and one side then the other side is a game mechanic I'd like to see explored more. Um... In a similar fashion, the Judge Dredd tabletop war game uses a system where uh, individual models have little chits, uh, I think with like their name or face on them, and they um, get pulled out of a bag and then used to activate that model. And certain models, uh, usually ones that cost a lot of points and are like special heroic types get put back in the bag. Well, you roll a die after activating them, and on certain results, the token goes back in the bag so that you can activate them again. Because... I am the law. I activate when I well, want. Well, because, you know, Judge Dredd is worth, like, five gangers, and so he's going to get to activate multiple times so that he's not just stuck only shooting one person. 
Uh, it, it's a really interesting mechanic. And I quite like the concept of making your hero her, blah, making your heroic guys heroic because they get to do more things. Yeah, Judge Dread, that's one that I eventually want to play. I have the starter set for uh, Stranium Dogs, which I haven't broken into yet, but even if we don't get to the actual game itself, they should work really well for Stargrave. Oh, yeah. But I know I know Strontium Dog uses a uh, modified version of Judge Dread, and I think the consensus is that Strontium Dog is a bit more interesting because the, the mutants all have interesting and different powers compared to Judge Dread, where it's like Judge Dread and then gangers. Yeah, there's Dread, there's gangers, there's... I honestly don't know a whole lot about what the Judge Dread game has. I know more about the old comics than I do about anything else. Um, and then the next one is also related to war games a lot, but also board games, and it's time limits. Yay, thank God. It's a mechanic that can be implemented in its most basic form in just having like a limit to the number of rounds and then the game ends. Uh, Infinity is an excellent example of this. The game ends after three rounds. Full stop. It cannot go longer. Which seems very short, but rounds can take a while. And each round has like a top-bottom half, so it's more like innings of baseball. Um, or it can be implemented like in Pictionary, where you have a little timer, and you only get a certain amount of time to draw um, a similar timer is used in Mysterium, one of my favorite games, where people only have a certain amount of time to uh, discuss things. Um, and then when the timer ends, everybody has to shut up and make their choices. Be quiet. <laughs> um, using time limits really helps to push the flow of a game further and to keep it from stalling out and getting stuck with, you know, an endless loop of discussion or one player, like, spending all their time doing things. Um, I'd also say that for role-playing games, I highly recommend that the people running them use timers. Especially... You have 15 seconds to select your spell. Maybe not 15 seconds, maybe, like, two minutes. But especially if your players are the type that have a really hard time making decisions or try to strategize far more than they should be uh setting a timer and either telling them okay you're you're in a collapsing building what are you doing and then when they start deliberating go no this is a collapsing building you have 60 seconds and letting them know that they have to make a decision quickly is a way to avoid those complaints about people whose turn in combat takes forever just let them know that a turn is six seconds, so I'm going to give you two minutes to make up your mind on what to do. And if you don't, then you stand there overthinking it and lose your turn. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite instances of a, a time mechanic like that in a RPG was listening to uh, Queens of Adventure, and they were trying to escape from a collapsing mansion and one of them had found a Pomeranian and just brought the dog along with them. But then like a big cavern opened up in the floor and uh, 
they couldn't figure out what to do. And one of them ended up like fumbling the dog and they dropped the dog down the cavern, but it bit one of them on the hand on the way down. And it turned out that, uh, it was actually a, uh, Pomeranian infected with lycanthropy. So one of them became a were Pomeranian, but I was just like, that was, that was some good improv right there where the DM's like, Nope, you take it too long. You, you drop the dog. Yeah. You couldn't make a decision. Yeah. Um, and another sort of time limit thing that I remembered was, Oh shit. I forgot it. Fuck. <laughs> so much for remembering it. Yeah. Um, time limits. It was, uh, before you said podcast that you were listening to, I said... Sorry, I didn't mean to derail. Oh, I had a thing. It was a good one, too. Um. Oh, uh, and a time limit doesn't have to be an outside-of-game timer or something like a round. It can be used inside a game. Uh, telling your players they only have seven days before somebody dies forces them to like work inside the game they can't you know do too many things in that seven day period so what are they going to do before the evil army gets here or the king dies of his poisoning or the dragon swoops in to destroy the dragon comes back for that thing that he's been promised using time limits is a good way to add urgency to a game and it can be used in a board game a war game or a role-playing game so it's a fantastic mechanic yep and the last one is more specific to rpgs than to just about anything else and that's player narrative choice and player narrative choice as a mechanic i like role-playing games where the players can assist with building the story on their own, where it's not entirely up to the game master. Uh, a lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse games do this, where the players, having come up with their backstories and origins, get a chance to state things about the setting, about the scene they're in, about what's going on, and tie them into what the story that they are trying to tell uh in the sprawl when links between two characters get high enough those two characters share a scene on their own where they describe how their relationship has changed now that they know each other so well and that could be you know either two people drinking and shooting the shit or maybe they're working on a car together or maybe they're like doing a side job where they're um like sneaking into a building and stealing stuff and just talking about how they get along so much better now how things have been great now that they figured out that uh they can rely on each other so games that give players the option to describe things and to add to the story are really smart and it's a good way to drive player engagement uh one trick i've used for dungeons and dragons games is that sometimes there will be npcs involved and i will ask the players oh what's this npc's name what do they look like um in one instance, there was a wizard who had mentioned that he had a rival 
in his backstory that, you know, someone who he had competed with while at wizard school. And so at a certain point, I had him run into that rival who was wanted in the next kingdom over for starting a rebellion. And I was like, okay, cool. What's his name? What does he look like? What are his personality uh, quirks? Uh, panic. Wizard McWizard face. Yeah, all right, he goes by Wizard McWizard face now because he's leader of this rebellion. Now, uh, what school did he study? Like, you studied divination magic. What did he study? Uh, uh. Evocation. I, Just I've say evocation. When in doubt, blow stuff up. Balloon animals. I'm. I. No, I think that's uh, transmutation. I'll allow it. Because you transmute things into balloons. <laughs> so, yeah. Give players of your games the ability to build the narrative themselves rather than simply being told the story. And they are more engaged. And so I like games that use that in the mechanics. And don't just leave it up to the discretion of the person running the game. Um... There are a few that do it. I believe I mentioned Powered by the Apocalypse. Um, Exalted does it a little. You're encouraged to perform stunts where you heavily describe what your actions are and how cool stuff is. Uh, basically, all of the White Wolf games are heavily, heavily based on player narrative choice because they are yep. all about that role-playing. So doing stuff like that is really good, and it's a good game mechanic. And in fact, that has been Good Game Mechanics. Woo! Ooh. You got something else? Nope, I just said woo. woo. Alright, uh, so on this podcast, we also have a segment called Board Game Corner. And today, we're going to talk about one that I don't think uses any of the game mechanics that we've discussed here. It's Dungeon Mayhem. Mayhem. It's a simple game. It's published by Wizards of the Coast. I don't know when they started publishing it. Since 5th since edition came out, certainly. It's very, very modern. Uh, probably within the last five years. Um, it's a one to four player, or sorry, two to four player versus game of playing different cards. Each player takes on the role of a character, a sort of stereotypical Dungeons & Dragons character, and you fight each other. You have a certain number of hit points, you have you draw cards into your hand, you play cards to attack other players or recover your own hit points or perform other effects like putting up shields that slow down attacks or getting rid of enemy shields. And it's very chaotic. Lots of stuff happens. It happens rather quickly because... I think you only get to play one card, two cards on your turn. So it, it there's a lot of mayhem. And it just plays very quickly. It's a great little party game. It's a great, like, lunch break game. Is when I played it the most was on lunch break with my coworkers. Um, it's cheap, easy to find. Worth checking out if you are interested in Dungeons & Dragons and are interested in quick little card games i recommend it enough said 
I like your recommendation. And that is it for our podcast today. As always, thank you for listening. We've been Knoll Country. You can find us on Twitter at Knoll Country. You can find us on Instagram, Knoll Country. Uh, you can like, subscribe, share, engage somehow with our content to cause other people to find it. Or just go out and shout at people and ask them why they're not listening to Knoll Country. That always works. Uh, yep. You can donate to stuff, and Ed will tell you where you can donate. Oh, boy. Uh, you can donate to uh, any of the LGBTQIA plus charities. Uh, True Colors United and Trevor Project are good options. Also, uh, donate to any of your uh, reproductive justice funds. That's always needed. And support the Ukrainians. Those are my shameless plugs. And I forgot what humorous fake item I had to sell this week. Maybe I'll remember next week. Uh, Noel Country branded worker placement workers comp insurance that works for when you're the workers you place get injured on the job it uh helps them with bills and rent and stuff and wouldn't be necessary if we had universal basic income all you got to, to kick it into effect all you got to do is start taking a nap at the bottom of your ladder and when somebody comes by and shakes you and says are you okay you just start shouting workman's comp over and over and over again this is accurate and as always, go Knowles. Go Knowles!